0: Uh, President Trump this morning uh, signed an order to renegotiate the US trade agreements with Mexico and Canada uh, under NAFTA. I want to get a little bit more insight now on what this means for Canadian US relationships. Let's bring in Josh Wingrove, Canada politics reporter. Uh, Josh, do we have a sense of what President Trump might start with uh, in his renegotiation of his Canadian trade deals?
3: I mean, sense from the canadians is he's going to start with mexico and all the industries that are driving what he sees as a trade imbalance with mexico and not canada and i think that's what's really going to splinter the nafta pact as we know it right now is that canada thinks if not hopes that it is not the target the ambassador here or the canadian ambassador to the us said that they don't want to become collateral damage as donald trump makes takes measures that will address that trade imbalance. So for them, I think it's really a wait-and-see. Canada's the top provider, for instance, of oil, foreign oil to the U.S., and they don't think that that will be impacted. So that would at least blunt... Any initial impact for the Canadian economy,
2: Josh? We're getting a report that uh, Donald, the uh, President Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, will be going to Calgary for a meeting with uh, Justin Trudeau and his team. Uh, he is supposed to travel there tomorrow, where Trudeau and his cabinet are currently holding a two-day retreat uh, focused largely on the new uh, U.S. administration. Does uh, sending, does having Jared Kushner? Arrive in Calgary. Does that uh, bode well for uh, U.S.-Canada relations?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. I'm, I'm in Calgary now. The meetings here have just kicked off. Stephen Schwartzman, who has ties to Trump as well, is also here to speak to the Canadian government cabinet about what, if anything, he thinks the uh, you know the M.O. of this Trump administration is, is going to be. Kushner and Stephen Bannon have had talks with uh, Justin Trudeau's most senior aides dating back to December. He appears to be sort of the, the go-to guy for Trump when it comes to Canada ties. And so I think that the Canadians are seeing his reported attendance here at this meeting tomorrow as a, as a good sign.
0: Josh, can I assume that when you say that Canada is hoping that Mexico is the primary target of this, uh, that Canada is expecting no change to its trade agreements with the U.S. as a result of this? Is that is that right?
3: No, I don't think that. I I think they're expecting that there's no intent to fundamentally change, but their concern is that they're going to be painting with such a wide brush out of Washington that Canada might not be able to avoid getting caught up in things.
0: What would be the biggest risk? What would be the biggest risk for Canada?
3: The biggest risk are on new border taxes. Probably that would the, the the flow of goods across the Canada U.S. border is staggering, and the supply chains are sort of interconnected back and forth. In other words. A widget can cross the border several times before it actually hits the market. And if you start tagging those back and back, it would throw into disarray the whole scheme. Uh, Trudeau's big argument with Trump is that 35 U.S. states have Canada as their top export market. and They hope that that's our sort of ace in the hole here in Canada.
2: Is there any way that you can kind of quantify the Canadian economy for us right now and the perception of uh, how Justin Trudeau and his liberals are doing?
3: It's sluggish right now. Canada fundamentally has been an oil uh, sort of energy economy, and for two and a half years they've been struggling with how to spur that growth. And so any dip or hit from reduced trade with the U.S., which makes up about 70% of Canada's total trade, would be, would be a significant thing. Trudeau is pushing Canada deeper into deficit in a bit to drive growth. That money has been slow going out the door. The data points recently have been mixed And so really, any U.S. disruption would be viewed by Canada as just sort of another straw on the camel's back of an economy that's really struggling to pick up steam.
2: And you're, what is it, 133 uh, Canadian uh, to the dollar.
3: Yeah, which has been flagged by Stephen Polar is is actually too strong. Our Bank of Canada governor here thinks that if the dollar was weaker that we'd be seeing a bigger uptick in manufacturing. Canada's typical sort of pendulum is that when Places like Calgary, where they're meeting now, where I'm now, and which is the oil capital of Canada, when things are down here, manufacturing picks up the slack. That ri- hasn't really happened. And so uh, they're hoping that maybe a lower dollar one day might fuel that.
2: Thank you very much for joining us. Josh OneGrove, he is our Canadian politics reporter, joining us from Calgary, site of a two-day meeting with Justin Trudeau and his Liberal cabinet. McDonald's. McDonald's reported its earnings that exceeded analyst estimates. However, the stock is down about eight-tenths of a percent, perhaps because of concern over U.S. same-store sales. They fell 1.3 percent. But here to tell us all the details, Mike Halen, Senior Restaurant Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And, Mike, I I use that word but very carefully here because I read your note this morning and you said, hmm, Don't look at this near-term thing. They're lapping some comps from last year with that all-day breakfast. They got bigger problems, don't they?
4: Everyone has bigger problems, (laughs) yeah, which we've written about uh, over the last week, um, which is demographics, right? Uh, The American population is aging, and their spending uh, has probably capped out. Uh, It's a very large generational cohort, um, in terms of numbers, they have higher debts than retirees had in the past. So, uh, yeah, those are, that's the big problem. Uh, in terms of their quarter, you know, there is some concern about the same store sales in the U S falling 1.3%, um, you know, for the quarter, but that's actually better than what the street had expected. And if you do, if you look at it, what we do is on, on a two year and a three year trend to kind of smooth out for weather and calendar shifts. Um, and large um, marketing and all day breakfasts. the more yeah yeah all day breakfast and there was a huge marketing push behind it last year but so when you look at a two-year and a three-year trend sales are actually accelerating so um, you know with with the um, better margins that you're seeing because of the story franchising you know the story hasn't changed here
0: so globally its sales accelerated Uh, where specifically did their sales increase the most
4: yeah the they, um they they were successful in China uh, Japan and the UK were three of the markets that they had mentioned as being strong for them
0: and and is it just because there wasn't as much penetration in those markets before and they're expanding
4: well the same-store of sales numbers come from existing okay. stores so um you know it could possibly being be that some of the franchisees you know due to the refranchising over the last couple of years are are um, you know, are, are being successful in terms of, of uh, running better stores. Um, there's some, um, you know, they're still, um, you know, doing better in Asia where there were some, some supply chain issues with chicken and stuff like that. So you're, you're comping over some of those issues of, of the last couple of years. So um, that all helps. We, we, you
2: and I were trading some emails earlier this morning, Mike, and uh, I kind of joked about the Automat. Uh, why is the Automat uh, such an apt reference point for people that don't know you explain
4: yeah well you told me about the automat it was uh, a restaurant concept in New York City from decades ago where you would kind of place an order and and it would just magically appear in, yeah, you put, in put the your little... you put
2: you'd put actual coins when coins could actually buy something it was like little windows like those little post office you know where the mail would come in and you would put in your coin and you would be able to take out a piece of pie or whatever you know with on a plate yeah but the reason that's that's relevant is because that is a similar concept in a way to what Mac- mcdonald's is doing
4: explain that the automat was ahead of its time so uh yeah what technology is where a lot of these restaurant chains are are moving to kind of help boost their sales right um you know for mcdonald's it's the self-order kiosks millennials don't want to take their ear pods out and talk to anyone you know they'd rather just go to the kiosk you know you know hit a few buttons uh and have their food brought out to them so this is a big push for McDonald's. Um, Wendy's is another one that that is. Because uh, it cuts their... labor costs
2: too, right? And also speeds up efficiency
0: well, in the store. Well, we don't see automats today. How effective have these kiosks been?
4: Well, they've been very su- successful in Europe for McDonald's. So, France- What about is, in the US? Is 100%. Well, the US, we've been slow to adopt. So, right? So, labor is much higher, is a much higher cost in Europe. So, that's why you've, you've seen them push it um, there before here. Um, but now with minimum wage rates rising over the last handful of years, you know labor is a bigger cost, so there's more of an incentive. There's a better ROI on these uh, kiosks, so that's why you're seeing chains move that way. Um, well, at least it doesn't
2: cha- even have to use the kiosk. You could just use a mobile app, go in, and pick it up, right? You, I mean, that's also something yeah. One that of these McDonald's days, those
4: lines are, are going to be a thing of the past. You're just going to walk in, and, and your food's going to be waiting for you. So, um, you know, we also have these, um, you know, alerts. You know, a lot of these apps have alerts. They know when you pull into the the drive through, and they'll have your they'll they'll start cooking your order as you drive onto the property. Because they'll check your previous order. And you
0: just open your mouth and they throw in an Egg McMuffin (laughs) and you're done, right? Well, they're going
2: to offer, maybe just for a little bit more, they will offer to have someone have breakfast with you.
0: Oh, yeah? And and take a napkin and wipe your face if it gets messy. What about other places? What about Chipotle, for example? Are they taking a a similar cue and and coming up with sort of self-ordering kiosks?
4: They're not moving towards kiosks just yet. They're they're more um, they're more concerned with the app. And the big thing was, you know, they have the high class problem of long lunch lines. So a, a big part of that is going to be the order ahead, and they're developing a, a second make line um, that that funnels these electronic orders and, and get your food ready for you faster. So everyone's going this way. I mean, there's going to be varying. Uh, degrees of success, though. We think that, you know, McDonald's may have a leg up because they have this technology already implemented in Europe, mm-hmm. so they already have a very large test that's gone well. So they have an advantage over somebody like Chipotle who hasn't done it before.
0: Michael Halen, consumer analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much. I am wondering whether we're ever going to have a day when it's just immediate gratification. We have fast gratification, but this is a whole new level, Pim Fox.
2: All right, let's turn our attention now to the world of the middle market with Lawrence Golub. He is the chief executive of Golub Capital. Uh, Lawrence, thanks for being with us here in the studio. Maybe just define for us what is middle market, and then you've just, you just in the same context, the information that you glean from your clients you turn into an index that maybe can reveal something about the economy. Tell us more.
5: The U.S. middle market refers to companies that have between about $10 million a year of profit up to a few hundred million dollars a year of profit, generally smaller than what Wall Street or the public markets would uh, pay attention to. But it accounts for one third of U.S. GDP, almost a three trillion market, accounts for more than half of job growth in the United States. Gallup Capital is a lender to U.S. middle market companies. We're the largest non-bank lender in the United States. And we have a portfolio of about 200 different companies that we lend to. And we've created an index with Ed Altman, a professor at NYU, to track the performance, the actual performance of U.S. middle market companies based on actual results from the first two months of each calendar quarter, so we can share that information with the market before earnings season really kicks off for public companies.
0: So what are what indications are you getting from this index?
5: Well, this quarter, profits are a little bit weak. Profits are actually down. Median profits are down about 2% and the that weakness is coming from two segments in particular, restaurants and healthcare services.
0: That's really interesting to me because a lot of people have talked about how the economy is starting to accelerate and there's a a clear belief in sort of the reflation of the economy. Could it be that the weakness in these smaller companies is idiosyncratic and separate, um, or does it sort of bode poorly for some of the bigger companies?
5: Well, keep in mind that we only cover about half the industries in the United States with our lending. So we generally don't lend to energy-related or commodity-related or big bulk manufacturing businesses. And you need to look at it sector by sector to see the trends. Industrial companies in the U.S. are actually doing pretty well. Profits are up, very consistent with GE's earnings announcement that revenues were flattish, but profits were up. I think we are dealing in the restaurant sector with a particular set of circumstances that's different from the rest of consumer products. There's really an overcapacity issue and a demand shortfall that's causing counts at restaurants to fall from where they've been historically.
0: One thing that I find fascinating right now is the growing number of pension funds and other large investors who are trying to get into private credit strategies and who are going into middle markets. I'm wondering, from a competitive standpoint, do you think that valuations are getting uh, particularly high or that the amount of money that you're seeing is is particularly notable?
5: Well, you can look at that in two ways. You can look at purchase multiples by private equity firms of middle market companies. And, and LBO firms are paying very high multiples for growth. You're seeing double-digit multiples for medium-sized companies based on the ability or the expectation that EBTA is going to grow through add-on acquisitions that are accretive because they're at lower multiples or organic growth or greenfields. On the credit side, You know, we are seeing pension funds and insurance companies and some sovereign wealth funds looking to deploy more money in a very low interest rate environment. And capital is relatively, debt capital is relatively plentiful
2: for good borrowers that are backed by good private equity firms. I just want to bring to your attention a Bloomberg headline that Aetna's Humana takeover has been blocked by a judge as anti-competitive. And the shares of Aetna are down about one and a quarter percent. And we'll give you more details as we get it, but right now Aetna's Humana takeover blocked by a judge uh, as anti-competitive. You know, Lawrence, in the middle market, you you mentioned you're a non-bank lender. Correct. Can you give us, since you're not in the banking industry, do you see that banks are walking away from the middle market? That was an accusation that I remember hearing all through the rebuild after 2008, that there was no bank money coming into small and uh, middle market companies.
5: So if you look at healthy borrowers, because banks don't want to lend to unhealthy borrowers in any field. If you look at healthy borrowers, most of the change happened before the financial crisis. The percentage of capital lending to middle market companies was coming from banks dropped to only about 20% by 2004 well before the credit crisis Dodd Frank so we're not seeing any real change I I think it is accurate to say that banks don't lend to middle market companies as much as they did a decade or two ago but but that's really based on the banks inability to make money from that as lenders
0: What about from the demand side, from the borrower's standpoint? I know for a while people were saying, you know, there's plenty of lenders, willing lenders, but the companies don't really want to borrow. Has that changed?
5: I I think that growth buyouts, companies that are, Making add-on acquisitions, expanding, want ex- to borrow a lot.
0: Can you give us some examples?
5: Well, we're we're lender to a few companies that are consolidating the veterinary care industry, and to us, that's a consumer product, not a, a healthcare product. And these these businesses are acquiring mom and pop veterinary clinics or veterinary hospitals, doing. 15, 20, 30 add on acquisitions a year. And so they do seek additional capital. We sometimes structure that as a delayed draw term loan. So it's committed capital, other times it's
2: through upsizes. We often have this debate about increasing revenue, but at the expense of profits or vice versa, that margins have been compressed. Are you seeing that in middle markets? We
5: definitely are seeing that in healthcare services.
2: It's interesting you talked about the the Aetna
5: headline. The compression of reimbursement rates in healthcare has caused margin compression. I think we have not seen in healthcare services companies an ability to take advantage of operating leverage. Volumes are up, procedures are up, but costs are up. And, and margins are not going up. It's really the opposite of what we're seeing in the restaurant area where the problem is counts not being up more than anything else.
0: So people have sort of referred to the cliche of a credit cycle in terms of baseball innings, one through nine. If that were the case, can you give us a sense of where we are in the middle market cycle?
5: From a lender's point of view, 2% growth is great. 2% growth Let's us keep our credit losses low. Uh, 2% growth gives huge margin for safety. Everything we're seeing in our portfolio is consistent with the economy continuing to grow at a steady level. Not a level that's going to make Washington happy, not a level that's going to boost wages dramatically, uh, but everything we see in the credit cycle shows it uh, going in a continuing, very stable way.
0: Do you think it would be dangerous for your companies if growth did get to
5: 4%? Well, if inflation picks up there are some risks because if inflation picks up and interest rates go up just the absolute level of interest rates takes away some of the cushion we also would worry about a diversion disparity of weak performers versus strong performers in the portfolio because any lender loses money from their weak performers not from their average performer
0: Lawrence Golub, thank you so much for joining us. Lawrence Golub, CEO of Golub Capital with $20 billion under management, uh, talking about the middle market and how there might be some weakness, but in general, uh, fairly steady growth, at least among the winners. want to bring in jennifer jacobs she is a bloomberg politics reporter here uh to give us a little bit more color from what happened this morning president trump met with a uh, round table of business executives and pledged to cut regulation by more than 75 percent as well as to drastically slash taxes and uh potentially tax have have a border tax jennifer what, what what's the headline for you
1: yeah, that's exactly it. He's got these big plans for a border tax. He's he's, he's saying he's going to dramatically cut taxes. There was a lot of uh, different business officials there. We had everyone from Dell Technologies, Whirlpool, Ford Motor Company, Johnson & Johnson, Dow Chemical, et cetera. So the Trump mission today is to really accentuate jobs. U.S. Uh, investment, and so they're steering things away from all the controversy over the weekend over crowd sizes and John Spicer's press conference and moving things back to jobs and, and economy. And so that is their message of the day, and they're trying to stay very focused on that.
2: Uh, Jennifer, uh, is, is there any way that you can describe for us the change that you have experienced so far in covering the Trump administration compared to uh, covering the Obama administration, just in terms of organization and uh, details? Because I know that there's a one thirty press briefing scheduled for today.
1: Yeah, exactly. That'll be Sean Spicer's first official press briefing where he takes questions. Of course, the one um, uh, over the weekend was just a statement. He did not c- take questions. They're getting their feet under them. I, one of the aides was joking to me that he's just finding the bathroom. They are now um, logged into the system and have their White House email addresses. Um, and they're very much you know, getting organized and doing things more along the lines of how the Obama administration was doing it before. So things were a little bit rocky over the weekend, but you know, we give them a little bit of wiggle room since they were brand new. Um, but if, from the press point of view, view. They are, are, are beginning to mimic what the Obama team did, and it seems to be going much more smoothly.
0: Jennifer, are relations between the press and President Trump's team as bad as they seem, just on the surface, over the weekend, the, the news was about alternative facts. Uh, Kellyanne Conway responded to a television uh, host's question about Sean Spicer and his uh, claims about a record inaugural attendance. Uh, and she said, well, he presented alternative facts. I mean, does this, does this highlight sort of a nadir uh, of a relationship between the press?
1: Well, we are always worried about tensions between the Trump uh, team and the press. But Bloomberg's relationship with their aides is very, very good. I think we do have a, um, a sense of trust with them. They appreciate Bloomberg and think we do a lot of good, fair reporting. So I'm not worried about it from that perspective. Just the overarching relationship sometimes does concern me. But, you know, Sean Spicer, not to defend him, but just to kind of give some context there, he has a boss who is very, very concerned about crowd size from the earliest days of, of Trump's campaign even before he had officially declared he was running for president he would get very annoyed with the press who he thought was underestimating his crowd sizes including me I've been uh, the, the I guess the subject of some of the, his um, rants about underestimating crowd sizes and so I'm and so this was huge for Trump to, to he wanted to be able to come out saying that he has this mandate from the people that he had a bigger crowd than ever and so I'm certain that Sean Spicer was doing what the president wished, which was to go out there and say, this was the largest crowd that anyone had ever witnessed. And then Sean was very careful to couch that and say, around the globe. And that's a very difficult thing to defend or or deny. How do we know how many people were witnessing that around the globe? And was it more than for President Obama? Who knows? But either way, I I just happen to know that that's something, and we all know that that's something that President Trump is very sensitive about. He always wants to have the biggest crowds, and he always wants to, to really push that. And he thinks that any attempt... To minimize his crowd is is the media delegitimizing him.
2: Jennifer, this afternoon, I understand that President Trump will be meeting with labor leaders. Uh, We were going to speak a little later on the program about McDonald's. That raises the issue of the, uh, the minimum wage, federal minimum wage and so on. I'm wondering if you have any insight into what those discussions will be about.
1: Right. I do not yet. I do know that they're very interested in talking to those workers. They had told me yesterday that this was going to be happening and that they really wanted to hear. It's a listening session. They really want to hear from them, and, and they're, they're going to pay attention to what these workers have to say. That's all I know so far.
0: Jen, I you know, the more that I hear some of the actions that President Trump is taking today, I have to wonder what is his relationship with the Republican leaders in House and Senate and have you gathered whether there is a sort of closeness as far as working together to get some of these provisions passed?
1: Yeah, definitely. Right before the inauguration, some of the the key staffers for some of the leaders on the Hill had told me legitimately their relationship is is much better, especially with Speaker Ryan and, and the Trump team. They legitimately have a good rapport at this point. They're almost giddy to be working together and to be getting things done. But as far as that sharing of information. I'm not so sure that that's happening quite yet, but partly because the Trump team maybe doesn't have it all planned out. I'm not sure if it's that, but um, because of when I do ask the Trump team, you know, what are your plans for executive orders and what are, you know, what are you hoping to move first in Congress? And they say, we really do have a plan where we have more um, of a plan than anyone would would ever suspect. Trust us. We're ready. Don't don't underestimate us like you guys did during, during the campaign. So it, it, information is trickling out very slowly. It's very slowly getting up to Congress. But I, I do think that their relationship is very good right now.
2: Can you tell us the uh, status of nominations for the cabinet?
1: Um, yeah, that I am not certain on. Um, I, I do not have an update for you on that.
2: How about Theresa May and the potential for a UK-US trade pact? Uh, She's scheduled to meet with the president uh, on Friday, I believe.
1: Correct. And Bloomberg broke the news um, that they are, are hoping to lay the groundwork this week uh, on a trade deal for between the U.S. and the U.K. for after the U.K. exits the European Union. I know from speaking to my sources that they began meeting with Theresa May's staff, her defense ministers and foreign ministers, in December. They've been meeting repeatedly with them. Um, they met with her two chiefs of staff. They've been having repeated conversations, continued conversations, really stressing that relationship between the United States and the U.K. And and this is really, really important to them to have her come over here. They want to start building this, and they, they think that they can get a lot of good, solid work done on getting a trade agreement with the U.K. done this week.
2: Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Jennifer Jacobs is our national political reporter for Bloomberg News.